Patrick here with some exciting news. We now have 10 local communities of engineering leaders hosting in-person meetups all over the world. Yes, you heard that right. There are 10 local communities in cities all over the world. These groups are led by engineering leaders just like you who wanted to create a place to connect, to share insights, and tackle critical challenges in the job. To get involved, go to elc.community. Sign up if you haven't already. If you have signed up, make sure you update your location and we'll get you plugged in. We're launching local events all the time. You can find them and get involved again at elc.community. What I typically tell CTOs and heads of data is that your data probably is biased already. So you need to go back and check your data sets and go reset the data from the very beginning. Hello and welcome to the Engineering Leadership Podcast brought to you by ELC, the engineering leadership community. I'm Jerry Lee, founder of ELC. And I'm Patrick Gallagher, and we're your hosts. Our show shares the most critical perspectives, habits, and examples of great software engineering leaders to help evolve leadership in the tech industry. This episode features a conversation with Jeremy King, SVP of Engineering at Pinterest. We cover a lot in this conversation. We talk about building inclusive products, some of the different frameworks and principles behind Pinterest's recent efforts to reduce and remove bias in their products. We also talk about filtering decisions through your company mission, investing in rest, and emerging industry challenges around how to build in serendipity, onboarding, retention, and the logistics of workplace flexibility. Let me introduce you to Jeremy. Before Pinterest, Jeremy King was CTO of Walmart, where he led the digital transformation effort of the company, including customer technology, merchant technology, and supply chain technology that covered all Walmart US stores and e-commerce. Prior to that, he was executive vice president of technology at LiveOps and vice president of engineering and software development at eBay. Enjoy our conversation with Jeremy King. Jeremy, we are so excited to have you on the podcast. Thanks so much for joining us and officially welcome to the Engineering Leadership Podcast. Wonderful. Thanks for having me. You know, we wanted to talk about building inclusive products and how to make that easy and actionable for engineering teams. And as Jerry and I were sort of preparing for this conversation, it became really clear to us that there's not a whole lot of insight behind the scenes as to what this looks like within engineering teams. Can you share with us about the process of building inclusive products and, and what that's looked like at Pinterest? And, and then maybe we can start to deconstruct some of the mechanics or frameworks within that conversation. So what is what does that process look like of building inclusive products at Pinterest? Yeah, well, I, I think the first point, you're, it's going to be maybe a bit disappointing. It's, it is not easy. So there, there is no easy insight on it. And I think when we think about Pinterest, the, the nice part, I've been here two and a half years, but you know, Ben and Evan had this mission to build a platform that was beautiful and that people loved. Both Ben and Evan are designers and architects, and you should see their collections are just unbelievable. And so they really did want a product that people like thought was beautiful. And as people come to Pinterest for inspiration, just like any startup, when you, you've got early adopters, oftentimes the early adopters are typical one demographic. Often it's a bunch of geeks. You know, In our case, it happened to be middle America crafts and that sort of thing. And what we found, like as we began to get feedback from our users, we get some quotes like, hey, I don't want to have to put black in front, of my, in front of my query or Asian in front of my query. We knew with both our IND teams and our engineering teams that we really had to get to work. The way you have to fix this is actually to step way back. Once data has been built into your models, 
then trying to unwind that sort of learning is really tough, right? You have to like over inject and you trying to boost up features and that sort of thing will work for a little while, but really what you have to do is go back and retrain your data. And so we had to go step way back and, and make sure that the data that we fed the engine was diverse from the outset. We built a product called Skin Tone Ranges. If you do a search for like lipstick and it'll ask you right on there, what skin tone would you like to see? And it'll let you pick that. And you can imagine uh, the technology behind that is extremely complex, not only from a, just an engineering standpoint, but the computer vision side of that is incredibly hard. Just detecting skin tones, we've had to go through a, a series. It's been like four iterations of how to get that right. Back to your question, it's like, is there easy points? What I typically tell CTOs and heads of data is that your data probably is biased already. So you need to go back and check your data sets and go reset the data from the very beginning. And that's, that's really, quote unquote, the easy part, but it's actually harder than uh, it sounds. My immediate follow-up was like, well, how do, you, how do you check the data sets? Like, how does that conversation typically look or who are you engaging with to, to do that sort of assessment piece? Yeah, great question. So we, of course, used our IND teams, but we also hired some wonderful people. We have the woman that runs our inclusive engineering team, Nadia Fawaz, and then we have a head of product named Annie Ta. And then the original person from IND was a woman named Candace Morgan, who's now part of Google. And the three of them together sort of built the whole ecosystem, like, here's what we have to go do. And so then you have to go out and literally build a diverse data set. And in the cases where we didn't have it, we had to go get it. And, and it wasn't so much that we didn't have it. It was just way biased on one side than the other. So you have to you sort of downplay the others. And then you just continue to add features on top of it. We knew that skin tone ranges was the number one feature that people wanted. And then we just launched hair pattern, which you can imagine is extremely complex. Curly hair, straight hair, bald, all the above, trying to identify that in billions of pictures and to make sure you're sourcing that is a really fun technical challenge. So Nadia and, and Annie have the, the ball on this. The other thing we do is a new user that comes in through the front door what do you show them? And it's like, how do I show diverse feeds from the very beginning when somebody comes in and does a search and say, hey, I'm interested in, in beauty products or I'm interested in fashion? What do you actually show there? And a lot of our growth is coming outside the U.S. as well. So we not only have to build diverse content from a skin tone and, and a nationality range, but we also have to think about it globally as well. I'm curious, the like early onset conversations, like at the beginning when everybody's coming together as a team to start the conversation of like strategically, how do we begin this process of, of building inclusive products? I was wondering if you could tap us into like some of those early conversations. What were some of those early conversations like with the team? Yeah, the first thing was, is we were really listening to the community, right? And so you get this feedback coming back from your user base. And again, it might be a relatively quiet set of the user base because if you're thinking about a new diverse set of people that are starting to use your product, you may have to be listening very carefully for that. So number one was just looking at the diverse feedback from our pinners. So the second thing was really figuring out what we can do about it. I got a, a download from Nadia and Candice when I first joined about how to, how to decide it. And you can imagine the challenges, these are problems that it's not something that an engineer can fix in a week. This is a really hard problem to work on. And most companies have tried it, as you've seen, have failed computer vision, face detection, and all kinds of issues with especially darker skin tones initially, like in lighting conditions. And these are like 
these are advanced PhD level problems to solve. And so we hired Nadia and Annie to focus on this, picked a few projects, and then Frankly, we let them experiment. The good news is Pinterest is built on a, on a great experimentation dashboard and uh, a platform. And so we were able to let them run with it for a while and just frankly see how it was working. And as you can imagine, our early attempts were pretty bad. Nadia does a wonderful talk about initially we went after face detection and, and there's all that's rife with issues of just turning even, you know, how do you detect that a face is even there? And especially when the pandemic hit, you know, you had everybody wearing masks and all kinds of different color masks and things like that. And so it was a a really hard problem. So we abandoned that completely and started down a new approach just to detect skin. Like, can can I identify that there's actually skin in this image? And it's a fascinating computer science problem, but it's really giving them the permission to go work at it, right? And dedicating some resources and letting them rock and roll. So it, it's a really great story. It's about a, she, she does a, about a two hour talk about how we went through the technology challenges, which is great. Oh, that's great. We'll definitely track that one down and, and put that in our, in our show notes. Jerry, I've been asking a lot of questions. I want to open it up to you. What are you thinking about right now? What's on your mind, Jerry? Yeah, I think this is a very good opening story to give people a really concrete example of how building inclusive product means with examples that give us the context to start a deeper conversation around. I was wondering, Jeremy, if you can help us to deconstruct the process a little bit more. Just to oversimplify the process, I can think of, well, to build inclusive products, you first need to have inclusive ideas coming from the employees or the team, coming from the, the customer. And then there's a voices are heard and amplified and included in the product you know, building, design building process. I was wondering whether you have any thoughts in terms of the framework and processes people can follow. Yeah, first things first. I mean, Pinterest as a company is sort of part of our mission to bring everyone the experience to you know build a life that they love. So when you think about everyone, we think about that. So it's part of our mission anyway. But to be fair, we really heard this from our user base. And I, I think you know this was many years ago uh, that we started this effort. But I think many companies are growing around around the globe have now heard this from their consumer base that, hey, we've got to build a, a much better uh, product for our diverse user base. So listening, listening is number two. And then number three, I mentioned, which is really the key, is making sure that you get some experts in there to understand if your data set is already biased. If it is already biased, which it probably is, then to go address that by either filtering out the bias by leveling the playing field or to go buy or acquire some data that is more diverse. Once you have a diverse set of data, then you can have your machine learning teams build on that data set to start. And frankly, then the last part is test, get feedback, right? And I think that's a fairly well-known practice, but make sure you're, you've got a very diverse set of people who are vocal about whether the results are working. And that's really the work we've done. And like I've said, we've done it over years of iterations at this point. So it's really something that it's hard to get right the first time. One of the things we were talking about earlier was like the conversations you have with teams that's helped them either get unstuck or to imagine new possibilities with the different technologies or products that you're working on. And I think Jerry and I, we were recently having a team conversation and the the subject of that conversation was to start to set a longer term vision. And admittedly, like I was stuck going into that conversation. I was like, oh man, like I can't even imagine like what I'm gonna have for breakfast tomorrow, let alone what we're doing is gonna look like five years from now. I, I know you had mentioned that you've had those conversations before to help people come to a 
to think about new possibilities or, or break certain patterns of thinking to think bigger. So I was wondering if you could share a little bit about your approach to that and like how do you help people to think differently or disrupt some of those patterns of, of thinking? Yeah, this is a good conversation. This comes up a lot in, in the innovation discussion. How do you help teams uh, become more innovative? My, my brother, my twin brother, is a, is a product uh, leader and always has been. And he and I used to laugh that I would complain about the technical challenges that we're trying to build. And, and then he would complain about the hard part of the product uh, role. And frankly, I, I feel like the product role is actually harder because the point of the product role is that you have to decide what to do. It's not how to do it. Once you've decided what to do, and what I mean by that is, there's all kinds of technical advances that are coming out and you'll have hack days that we have wonderful new startups that come talk to us. We'll, we, we have some great scientists that help build our graph uh, database. And the problem is like, how do I apply this technology to a feature and then say, yes, that's what we're going to go after. And so it's, I feel like my role as not only the engineering leader is you know, a very heavy influence on the product side is, you show the art of the possible, and then you decide to go do it. And I, I, I don't want to say ideas are, I think the cliche is like, there's, there's a million ideas out there. The question is, which idea do you go after? And so I'm a, I'm a bias for action person. So I want somebody to say, hey, we've got this great new feature, this capability, and then let's go ship it. Let's actually get it out there. Because you, you can get products that are like, 80% of the way and you can play around with it, but until it's actually in production, you don't know, you don't know whether it's going to be useful or not. So I push my teams to like actually get it out there. And that's the startup way is to hack it into their product and see if it works. So, so I really am trying to get ideas to action. And that's because I think there's, there's a plethora of ideas out there. There's not a lot of people out there who can turn that idea into something useful. And that's very fascinating. Can, can you share us a little bit more on that that example process? That is that idea originated from the engineering team, and then just go ahead and run experiment because you mentioned there's a, a really solid experimentation framework to have. Or is, does the idea come from the product? Yeah, luckily Pinterest was built from the ground up with experimentation built in, like many of the digital only companies. In my previous life at Walmart, you're sort of injecting you know experimentation platforms into platforms that weren't originally built for experimentation. And so it's much harder to do a test and learn uh, process on that. So number one, that's, Pinterest is lucky because we're largely digital. And it, uh, But Walmart, for example, did lots of physical experiments in stores where they'd rip out a bunch of registers and put some new ones in to see what that looked like. And really trying to build a, a physical iteration process that matched the digital uh, and that included training and that sort of thing. But again, it's like picking a few of them and not actually, you know, putting some meat behind it and seeing whether it's going to work. There's a million hack day ideas that are sitting in the idea lab, you know, list somewhere that have never been realized. And it's really about, you know, having the courage to go try them. I had, a, I guess, a question about uh, all of the, the different ideas. Like, is there like a certain framework or filter for how you and the team work through, like, what's the go, no go or the experiment that you're taking a bet on? What's that decision making process like? Yeah, good question. We had we sort of matured matured this last year. Uh, a guy on our team named Sartek took it upon himself to build essentially a feature. There's a few companies out there that do these sort of idea labs, startup hack day idea labs, where you put in a series of ideas and the technology behind it, and then the company will vote it up and down, and the top ten get funded or get prototyping dollars. And and we sort of matured that this time, and we've got about 
It's fun. We have about 10 projects that are in the loop. Then several of them are internal productivity things versus, versus things that pinners will see. But that's a well-known process, and usually it's done via Shark Tank or, or whatever. I was just talking to a, a good friend of mine that was they run like a Shark Tank process. And half the fun of that is just getting in front of the product teams to get your product in front of them with some feedback. So I, I highly encourage if you don't have a, a mature hack day process for that, that your company should put that in. And make it a fun event and also make sure that you fund, you know, call it a half a dozen of those projects. Otherwise, you know, people will lose faith that they're just doing it for for no real reason, right? And then celebrate the ones that go live. So I know a lot of companies that use ROI as well. And ROIs are sometimes, ROIs are gameable. That's all I'll say. So pick the ones that people have their gut um, feeling on and then launch them in production, right? Yeah, speaking for ROI, I'm curious to learn that uh, a lot of features that are on the, uh, to make the product more inclusive, by nature, the the way the impact is measured probably going to be very different from the mainstream way of doing things. So how do you help to calculate or measure the ROI for those features? Yeah, great question. So the, the way Pinterest works, our experimentation platform has essentially a series of metrics uh, across the board. Is it positive for new users? Is it positive for a cohort of these users? Is it positive from an ROI standpoint, from an ads platform. And it's really interesting. And I was just telling a team this the other day that rarely is any feature that we launch 100% positive to every metric. And that's where the product management and product decision-making comes in. Because you can say, hey, this is really good for new users, but it's not great for our, our users that are power users. Do you ship it or do you only ship it to new users and not ship it to your power users? These kind of decisions are extremely difficult to, to make with data alone because you have to, you, you see the data and half of them you would say, if it's not 100%, then just don't ship it. But that seems crazy, right? So again, we, we do have, because we have the experimentation platform, it gives us some freedom to launch things to very niche sets of users. It makes your system extremely complex when you do that. So it's not just personalization, but it's something else. So so we try and make our bets on where we're going and part of our values as a company. One of the interesting things that people laugh a bit about me when I talk about Pinterest goals, our goal on Pinterest is not for you to stay on Pinterest for forever, right? I mean, like we call it, people call it doom scrolling. We want you to actually be inspired to actually go out and do something like cook dinner, or buy a new dress or find out how to, you know, make a, a table for your home office. You know, we want you to leave Pinterest to go actually out in the world and do things. So it, it may be a little bit different from a company culture standpoint than others, but we, we try and put it around our values. I think it's so interesting, especially in the world of increasing retention on a platform where it's have eyeballs on our central platform as long as possible. Do you measure that? Like, do you, do you measure like the conversion from like idea to action? Is there a way to, to see that type of impact? Yeah. As a matter of fact, this is one of the big things we're launching tomorrow is we call it takes. And I even did it this morning. One of the, the creators that I follow does a whole bunch of breakfast stuff and he did this whole cheesy egg thing. And I, and what you do is you get a video of like how he did it. And then you 
you eat film yourself doing it and saying, and I happened to add uh, jalapenos and sriracha and a few other things on top of it and said, this is my version of what he created. And then I posted it back. And so the whole point was to build, you know, a community around the, the recipe that I was following this morning. And you can imagine that in recipes where people will build a vegan version of it or a steak version instead of a chicken version or something like that. But you can also think about it as, you know, fashion or, or beauty or home or, you know, pretty much everything. I'm doing a creative project and here's what mine look like. Pinterest has been famous for years on what's called Pinterest fails. I don't know if you've ever seen that. Even six, seven years ago, of course, somebody would come out with this beautiful cake that they baked and it's all perfect. And then somebody <laughs> would try to attempt it. And of course, it would come out a disaster, right? And, and, and so they would take pictures of like, here's what it's supposed to look like. And here's what mine came out like. And that's been a really famous meme. If you do a search for Pinterest fails, you'll see, you'll see all kinds of wonderful uh, examples of people trying stuff and then totally making a disaster of it. So hopefully people will work their way through that and, and show their beautiful takes. But that's the idea. It's, and, you know, what we're building is not an entertainment platform. It's a, it's, I'm a geek, so I'll, I'll say something like utility. We want people to be, you know, want to be helped, right? I want to go there and find, hey, I need to go make cookies for my kid's Halloween party and then go out and do it and then show it with some, share it with someone else. Hey, I, I changed this a little bit and here's how it goes. And that can be a community versus just like a blind, I like that or I'm following this person, right? So we want it to be a community of people that are like-minded, if you know what I mean. I have to imagine like it's almost a tricky incentive. Like how do you set up the incentives in the right way to, to create that? How do you use like the mission of Pinterest within the decision-making of the different products and features and things that get released in a way that's incentivizing those outcomes that you want people to achieve on the platform? Yeah, that's a good question. We've had a lot of uh, debates about this internally, and a lot of companies, especially in the social space, use time uh, on site as their metric. We don't use that. What we want is, what we want is more like call it sessions. Like I would love for you to come and get inspired about what to make for dinner every night, and come and say, "Hey, I, I want some a chicken recipe tomorrow. I want a soup recipe," and come every single night to do that. So we're talking about sessions and not necessarily session length. And this part of the reason that we've done things like takes is that we want people to show what they did afterwards. And so community engagement and feedback, we played around with comments and likes, things like that, and are sort of pushing that off to the side saying, we'd rather just have you show what you did versus, you know, just say, hey, I like this idea. And so that's really where what we're after. And frankly, it's early days. We're experimenting like crazy. We have a CEO and a head of product that are super passionate about this space. And so it's, again, it's part of our mission. This is a product of inspiring, inspired life. You know, I had a lot of choices where I could have gone to work. And after spending some time with Ben and a few members of the team, it's like pretty hard not to love this product, right? And, and I actually <laughs> went around, I tell people this all the time. I went around and asked people, because I, I wasn't really a heavy Pinterest user, and I, but I go around and ask people like, hey, do you, do you use Pinterest? And people will go, oh my God, I love Pinterest. Here's my boards and this is what I'm working on. I'm like, oh my God, so many people. And it's funny, everyone thinks, a lot of people say that Pinterest is largely built for women, but I'll tell you, every man that I know that's in construction or a DIY person or any kind of designer or call it, anybody's into fashion, I mean, they all have really elaborate Pinterest boards. And some I, I came across this metal worker, pretty like, you know, hardcore metal worker that was building like benches and stuff out of this awesome metal. He has the most amazing Pinterest boards where he gets inspiration from. People who run movie studios, um, TV, they're all getting their, their inspiration on off of Pinterest, which is, it's wonderful to, uh, to build a product that people love like that. Yeah, it's a outlet for a lot of creative people. Yeah. 
Exactly. I use it. I use it to inspire. Honestly, use it to inspire like my first, like sitting at my first home office. So I was like, yeah, I, me too. I don't have any. Yeah. I don't have any style, personally. I don't have any style. I don't have any aesthetic sort of tendencies. So I just I needed expert opinions, essentially. Exactly. Exactly. It's a perfect spot for that. Patrick here with some exciting news. We now have 10 local communities of engineering leaders hosting in-person meetups all over the world. Yes, you heard that right. There are 10 local communities in cities all over the world. These groups are led by engineering leaders just like you who wanted to create a place to connect, to share insights, and tackle critical challenges in the job. To get involved, go to elc.community. Sign up if you haven't already. If you have signed up, make sure you update your location and we'll get you plugged in. We're launching local events all the time. You can find them and get involved again at elc.community. My next question, please feel free to tell me. I don't have an answer to this or cannot talk about this, but I was just curious because like the mission with the mission of people discovering and then going out and applying it, I'm like, okay, cool. Like in a way, like Pinterest is like helping people in real life enhance their real life. Is there like a metaverse or an AR, VR sort of component on the future? Are you allowed to talk about that? If not, totally fine. We haven't grokked like a complete Pinterest metaverse, but I, as I've been working with other retail and home and fashion companies, there's a ton of experiences just like the beauty AR try-on. And you'd be surprised. The interesting thing I love is people will experiment with really interesting colors that I think not only are fun, but also like really let them explore. Like, I'm not going to say that if you walk in Sephora, you're not like walking up to the orange and the green kind of makeup. But when they go to Pinterest, they, they like, do the sort of classic red and the beige tones, and then they go straight to what does purple look like and what does orange look like, you know, that sort of thing. It allows people to explore in a free way and, again, a personal way. They're not sharing this with their friends or the world. And so they can really become themselves. And we see that from everything, you know, everything from home, fashion, decor. I mean, not everybody doesn't want the cookie-cutter home or their apartment. They want something unique. We have this notion of private boards, too, and, and private boards, not everybody uses that, but, you know, you see lots of people who are just experimenting with maybe a new look or all kinds of different things that, you know, they're not ready to share yet with the, the world, and it's a, it's a great, safe place to be. Earlier you mentioned your journey to to decide joining and working for Pinterest and going back to the topic of building inclusive product. So what's the relationship between that and uh, being able to attract and retain talent and how that come back to impact the product itself in terms of making it more inclusive? Yeah, I think it's fair. It's a fair question. One of the worries I've had about COVID and not necessarily with Pinterest but I'm a member of the CTO forum, which is about 150 CTOs that get together every quarter and talk about what's going on in the world. And not everybody has a mission like ours. And I just worry that the the world is going to become a bit more mercenary, if you know what I mean. Hey, I'll go work for this company and hey, it's great. And But, you know, this company over here is going to pay me $2,500 more or whatever. So I'll just go over there, right? And so I'm, I'm worried that companies that don't have a mission like Pinterest are going to have this sort of mercenary effect and it's going to change the way we think about engineering and onboarding and all sorts of things as we talked about in productivity. With Pinterest, I think we do attract a very a very diverse set of, of engineers, but also people who want to work on these types of problems. I know uh, there's been a lot of PR about folks that are experimenting with this around the internet, but I mean, we're putting this into action. You can see it on our on our website, you can see it with our features. We've got, you know, teams that are focused on it. And I just spoke at Dev Color this weekend, and 
it was a fascinating uh, discussion about how challenging some of these problems are from a technical standpoint. And frankly, engineers want to work on super hard problems and things that they can sink their teeth in, but also can make a difference. So I think that attracts people to Pinterest as well. Yeah, I remember the founder of DevColor was uh, yes. uh, working on Pinterest when the organization was founded. That's right. McAday is a, was a Pinterest engineer and who founded it. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, as a matter of fact, I, I gave him a shout out this last weekend. It's a great organization to be affiliated with. They do a great conference. It was it was excellent. Yeah, that's a good reflection of the culture. Yeah, exactly. True. <laughs> One thing I wanted to ask you about, Jeremy, was I saw last week that there... I think I saw this is a post on LinkedIn about invest in rest. And because I know one of the things we, we wanted to talk about a little bit was about productivity and some of the challenges and dilemmas related to productivity now in a in a, a year and a half sort of post COVID world. But I want to start with invest in rest because I'm tired. I, I'm burnt out. I'm, Jerry and I talk about this. He's burnt out. We're both like burning the midnight oil and working on a lot of different things. Can you tell us a little bit about the invest and rest movement? What inspired that? And what's the intention behind it? And how has it been going? Yeah, it's an interesting point. And frankly, it's so tough because it's hard to detect in a COVID world too, right? Where you, you've got this great employee base that you're not necessarily connecting on a personal level on a day-to-day basis anymore. So it's hard to detect as somebody under stress and that's as much as you were able to in a previous world. And so we're not a retailer, but you know we're a heavy Q4-ish kind of company. And so lots of our features are, are getting launched right now. We're doing our big launch uh, for creators tomorrow. So our teams have been burning pretty hard. But as we looked at the data in COVID, I think almost every single engineering company reported an early increase in productivity. And as I've done research, not only here, but also with a number of third parties that have been investigating this by looking at people's calendars and when they're checking in code and these sorts of things, you're seeing people's work days grow, right, uh, across the board. And it used to be, okay, you work like, and as an engineer, you're working most of the time, you're working like an eight to nine to 10 hour day. And now people are working like these 12 hour blocks and they might have some breaks in between, but it's a really t- long time to be building products and being focused and just not being away. So what we've decided to do is we've been calling them pin tensions days, like intentions, like, hey, leave the company. You know, it's like literally extra holidays. And it's frankly, it's made a huge difference in not only the morale, but the productivity of our teams. If I go take a personal day off, when I come back, I've got two days worth of email I got to go deal with. If the whole company takes a day off, then, you know, you're pretty much free. That's like an extra Saturday, if you know what I mean. So it's it's really helped us a ton. Not every company can afford it or will do that. But if you think about taking some time for yourself and getting your life in order. Work-life balance is a real thing. And and so we were just worried that given where we were in the cycle, that we just needed to make sure people had some time to rest, if you will. And not everybody does that. I mean, engineers in particular, you know, they can code. I mean, you've seen coding all night kind of sessions. And if you don't have anything else to do, your friends aren't going out, I'll just code a little longer, right? And it can be pretty unhealthy. That's what we're trying to prevent from happening. I think it's so so relatable because I think Jerry and I in different ways and in different sort of expressions of that have found ourselves in in places like that where we're really going anywhere. But so we might as well work late doing something like this, launching this new thing. So I guess for somebody who's going to roll this out, like I'm looking for your quick advice for if you were to do like a full day off for the team, like how, how do you set that up? Like how far in advance do you communicate that to the team? Like how do you set expectations around 
do you have like quick like structural tips for how to set up something like that? Because I'm also like asking in case like Jerry wants to do this before one of our big launches and yeah. things that we're doing. So, well, it's funny you say that because we've had these debates because um, the last contention state we announced just two weeks before we did it, and it was frankly it was a disaster for some teams because if you got this launch coming up like taking two weeks or two days one or two days out of a schedule that's only two weeks long can be really painful so i would say give it a month to say hey you know next month we're going to take an extra day that sort of thing if you do it the next week you cause all kinds of problems where teams are you know they're not ready and they can't do it and that sort of thing so people can plan around it that's number one Number two, we also asked people to go out and, you know, show their teams what they did on that day. And you had people from, I went to go visit my mom, or we went on a hike, or I just sat on the freaking couch and watched movies all day, just so you could get people to really let go versus quietly checking and that sort of thing. And it's been great. And frankly, it's been super well received in the New York. So like I said, not everybody can do it. I've had to do this for years. I When I was at Walmart, I didn't have a Thanksgiving for eight years because you really can't work on Thanksgiving when you're a Black Friday oh, kind of company. I, didn't so, even think uh, about that. Yeah, exactly. So you have to remember that you don't have to go give people an extra few days to go have a, a Thanksgiving for their families, right? Especially for people who are working in the NOC or their SRE types. It's pretty hard to give those folks the day off when everybody else is off. Somebody's got to watch. You're running a 24-7 business like we are. Not everybody can take the day off. So make sure you're paying special attention to those folks who don't get the day off and give them a couple days off later. Definitely. I love that. So you shared a little bit about like the solution or a way for people to help overcome burnout, but are there other elements of like the post COVID productivity dilemma that you're paying attention to or observing or some of the trends that you're, you're seeing there? Anything else that's stood out to you the last year and a half that's changing or different? Yeah, it's, it's funny. We went um, back to the, when San Francisco opened briefly, we went back to the office and I was going probably two and three days a week. And, you know, we have about a thousand seats in, in San Francisco and we're only getting a couple hundred people coming. But it's funny, I had a couple of sessions where I had a five-minute meeting with my finance partner, and I hadn't talked to Molly in a while, and I had this question about how this one report was done, and we literally had this five-minute meeting, and I'm like, oh, I got it, per perfect, awesome. And I, I just forgot about the five-minute meeting. Those meetings don't exist anymore. Like, oh, I have to schedule it, and nobody ever schedules five minutes, and if it's too long for Slack... And, you know, too much of pain in the ass for a half an hour meeting or getting 15 minutes on your calendar, then it's getting lost. And I'm a little bit worried about those type of moments, especially for onboarding. So we do a lot of interns, a lot of apprentices, a lot of college hires. And frankly, we know that onboarding has been more painful, less productive than when we we're in person. So we've invested heavily in onboarding tools and lots of documentation and lots of meetings, but it's still, even though we've invested a ton, it's still not as good as like clicking over to your neighbor. Hey, what was that? What was that system called again? And how does that work? Like taking that two minutes to help somebody get with the speed. And so I'm worried about, you know, long-term productivity of new hires in particular and whether they come up to speed fast as fast. I think most other CTOs are also worried about invention and, and innovation. So how do you build the serendipity that an office environment has? And especially when you're, you know, we're not that big of a company, but, you know, we're 1,000 engineers, about 3,000 employees. It's hard to, like, connect people. And so we've been having sessions. Uh, we've been calling them coffee chats. And, it, and frankly, people just want to sit in a room with people that aren't on their team and just talk about the company or what's going on. <laughs> just like 
connect people that literally don't work together every day in the same company, but don't work together. And they're just like fascinated. Oh, here's what's going on with sales. And oh my God, this is what's happening over on this part of the engineering team. It's just those kind of sessions you need to like now physically make happen versus the past that would just happen in the lunchroom or while you're walking around the hallway, right? So I'm worried about it. I don't think there's a perfect answer for this, but you know, we got to keep, keep working on it. Yeah, I can't help asking, how do you make those sessions happen? even manually. So frankly, who figured this out was our CEO. And so your CEO sends you a note saying, hey, would you like to do a 30-minute coffee chat with me and four other people? It's pretty hard. People don't turn that down, right? And so he came up with that insight initially saying, oh my God, it was, I didn't get a lot of insight, but people just loved hearing from the other teams. They never get to interact with another team. And so we started that with a lot of the executive groups. And then each, we have a we have a, a bunch of internal resource groups for our different communities, and they've started it with themselves saying, hey, if you, well, you know, 10 of us are going to get together on Thursday and sign up here and that sort of thing. So, again, it's mostly volunteer, so we have to figure out a little bit how to ingest this into the rest of the company as well. It's, uh, yeah, in a post, I mean, there are a lot of companies that are fully remote. You know, people love that environment. Personally, I don't love a fully remote environment. It's hard. Even like when I'm speaking to a large group, I often will speak to a hundred or maybe even a thousand people and you can feel the energy in the room. You can understand whether they're getting you. You can, you know, see if people have questions and that sort of thing. And, and that's pretty hard to do when 12 squares out of a thousand are showing up on your screen. You can't really read the room. And so it's, it's harder as a leader too. There's lots of work that I need to do and, and the rest of the, the world needs to figure out. One of one of the other things that you had mentioned just briefly was about like the some of the challenges around people interpreting flexibility differently. I was wondering if you could introduce that a little bit and like that somehow the challenge of that dynamic. Because I think when you brought that up, I was like, yeah, of course people have different interpretations of flexibility, but that makes it really, really complicated. Yeah, this is exactly the challenge I'm talking about. Is you you may have one person who thinks flexibility is I'm not coming in before noon. Another person thinks I'm only working on Wednesdays and Fridays. Another person thinks that I'm working from Hawaii. Another person says, I'm going to work from India. And so at that point, you have a team that can never connect with each other, right? This is where I think companies are going to these norms. And sometimes they call it core hours and a few other things. And you, they're having to be pretty strict in some cases saying, hey, we're going to work. This team is going to work from 10 a.m. Pacific to 4 p.m. Pacific. You need to be online so that we can have some interaction, right? And it, maybe it's Monday through Wednesday, you, you do that. And then on Fridays and Thursdays, it's open. So I think that's what's going to happen. I think Amazon and a few other companies have decided to make it team by team. They get to decide. I think that's going to be short-lived as well because it's going to be chaos when, hey, this team only works on Fridays and this team only works on Mondays. How are you going to get those teams connected? But we'll see. We'll, we'll see how it goes. But I think these these norms are going to be really hard to, to figure out. I, I always make fun of folks work want to work from Hawaii, you got a, team, a person who works in New York, you got a person who's in Hawaii, now you only have like a two hour window where you guys can talk to each other. And if you're working from Hawaii, you're probably working on West Coast time anyway, you know, you get up late and, you know, work later. But we'll, we'll see. We'll see. I think all of this is going to shake out in the next six months. Yeah, Jerry and I definitely feel that tension. We were West Coast, East Coast split. But to me, even then, like East Coast, West Coast, like there still is a little bit of that sense of like, you wake up on the West Coast and the East Coast has already been living for a couple hours, and so it makes exactly. it a little bit, uh, that happens a little bit a more challenging. Yeah, I'm going to spend some time in our European offices, and you end up doing double days because you do a whole day in Europe, then California wakes up, and then you got to do a whole day with them, right? So <laughs> you're very tired when you get back. <laughs> Jerry is familiar with that life. 
exactly. <laughs> Jeremy, we're, we're getting close towards the end of our time. Um, this has been a fantastic conversation, but we've got a couple <laughs> quick rapid fire questions sure. to get into. If you're ready to dive into those. Yeah, bring it. All right. I love it. So first one, what are you reading or listening to right now? Mm. Yeah, well, I talked about Hail Mary. Uh, Andy Weir, I believe, is, the, the, is a wonderful book. I just finished, I was just on a holiday with my wife and I read Stephen King's novel. It's it's a time travel novel. I think it's called 112265 or 63 or something like that. It's all about time travel. It's great Stephen King. And then the nonfiction stuff I'm reading is a, a book called Signal to Noise, which is about statistics and, and analytics and how to how to determine what what's lying to you, you know, what data is lying to you. <laughs> I really admire the blend of fiction and nonfiction. I think yeah, that's just a great left-right left, right brain balance. Exactly. Okay, next question. What is, what's a tool or methodology that's had a big impact on you? Interesting. The one I tell CTOs the most is, I call it the transparency methodology, if you will. I have, the number of times in my career where I, whether I had 100 engineers or 1,000 engineers where either my boss or the head of product comes to me and says, you got to have 10 people that you can shake out of the street to go work on XYZ project. And the only way to answer that is to say, here are the 20 things we're working on. Which one do you not want to do? You know, that sort of thing. So being extremely transparent with not only the product roadmap, what your engineers are working on, how much things cost, all of the above. I'm a ultra transparency person. And that's just helped make decisions faster, make sure people, you know, know why I'm making decisions in certain ways. And it's a, it's a tough thing to do because it's, it's a fluid environment and you have to have, you have to put in processes in order to figure that out. I mean, I I have an, I have to ask a follow-up question here for like the 20, if it's like a scale of 20 different things, how do you typically track that? Is there a tool that you use or is it? At at Pinterest, we use Jira and we're migrating. It's not as easy as you think. We have a, a, a process that extracts data out of Workday that shows where people are, and then we tie that to an OKR, and it's it's a little bit more manual. Believe it or not, I had 10,000 engineers working for me at Walmart, and I was able to, with a click of a button, I could tell exactly what Jerry was working on. Jerry, you're working on this, right? And it was all just a, it wasn't any time tracking, it was just when you checked in code to GitHub, you had to assign it to an OKR, and as a result, I knew what everyone was working on. It's an awesome process. Um, there's a lot of tools that are coming out that are like that, especially in the COVID world, because it's hard to keep track if you don't have a process yep. like the COVID world. So <laughs> once you get over like 20 engineers, it gets pretty hard to keep track in, in one person's brain, right? So it's a good it's a good thing to, to make sure you put in your processes. Thank you for answering that. That was because I think you nailed it. Like tons of people are dealing with that challenge right now. So that's why I was like, yeah. oh, I think we got to ask this follow-up question. What is everyone working on? That's a, such a common question. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Okay. Uh, what is a trend that you're observing or that you're following that's really interesting or something that hasn't quite hit the mainstream yet? Oh, interesting. I, I love all forms of um, alternate power. I've been looking at this new battery tech. I, I went to a TED conference like 10 years ago, and they were talking about battery tech that you know you could use dirt just to build these massive batteries. The other thing that's coming up lately is, is nuclear, micro-nuclear uh, power plants. That's, I think that's very close. And some of that is being fueled by the machine learning engines that allow us to model out these things at a much bigger scale than we used to be able to. So it's being power, a lot of this is being powered by giant machine learning engines um, that are allowing you to, you know, to take on problems that we knew we could probably solve but haven't been able to touch. But can you imagine if we had little micro-nuclear power plants all over? It would be a huge win for the environment. 
What is your favorite or most powerful question to ask others or to be asked yourself? Oh boy, I like telling people my story of how I got to where I am. I, I do a lot of guest teaching at, at my alma mater. I just did one at Berkeley. And everybody asks, like, how did you get your job? And I love telling the story about how hard work will prevail, like work ethic and hard work. A lot of people say hard work beats intelligence, but I've, I've met some really, really intelligent people that kick my ass, so I, I won't say that. Uh, but hard work can pay off, right? And, you know, and it's really about me volunteering and taking on new hard problems that got me to where I was. And that was oftentimes at the detriment of my family life and that sort of thing. But it was, it was the reason I got to where I was. Last question, Jeremy. Is there a quote or a mantra that you live by or a quote that's, I guess, recently been resonating with you right now? I always tell people work hard, play hard. I mean, it's too short of a life to, you know, get so serious about everything you're doing and then like, you know, decide that you're going to have all the fun when you're retired. I spend a lot of time at work and I work pretty hard, but when I'm with my friends and family, we turn it on, right? We, we try to have the best time as we can. We can. And uh, it's not always hard to, to live up to that, but I, I think it's something I strive to do. Play really hard. Well, I just want to go back to the, the point we were talking about at the beginning of changing up meeting locations because I, I did want to point out I observed the work from barbecue post that you did. Yes. And I was like, yes, you got to bring the fun. I love that. I built that barbecue. Uh, that's a that's one of my favorite Pinterest projects. I built that barbecue. It was it, It's an awesome project. I need to do an idea pin on that one because it's a it's pretty amazing project. So... So I'm very proud of that space. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Thank you. This has been an incredible conversation. Thank you so much for your time. So glad to be here. And thank you guys for, for making the time. And uh, take a look at our launch tomorrow on 1020. By the time this gets published, it'll be well out. So uh, yeah, <laughs> thanks for letting me talk a little bit about Pinterest and, and what's going on in the world. We covered a lot of different topics with Jeremy in this episode. We wanted to focus these takeaways on where you should start to build more inclusive products. So here we go. First, check to see if your data is biased. It most likely already is. If it is biased, you'll need to invest in filtering your data set or buying and acquiring new, more diverse data sets. Listen carefully to your user base, especially to new people starting to use your product, and dedicate resources to experiment, test, and solve the problem. One final consideration. We've brought up burnout a couple different times in the last few episodes. For a lot of folks, the holidays and the new year invite all sorts of deadlines and pressure. I know I felt the same way. Make sure that you're taking care of your teams and don't be afraid to invest in a little rest. 